Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament, week number 18, for the week of April 30th through May 6th. I hope everybody has a wonderful, and I mean it, a wonderful Cinco de Mayo. Go eat some wonderful Mexican food. Support your local Mexican restaurant. Um, enjoy some chips and salsa. Get a chili relleno. Um, get a burrito or an enchilada. Get some chips and salsa. And get the spicy salsa this time. Go get it. Go all out. Get the hot sauce and the rice and uh, all of that wonderful stuff. My family, we are big believers in supporting your local favorite Mexican restaurant. Now, we understand we can do this two different ways. You can do it by a fast food option like Taco Bell or a more traditional Mexican sit-down place like El Megway, which is our family's favorite place on North Dixie. So go out, enjoy time with your family, and support Cinco de Mayo. It's a wonderful holiday. It's one of the best days of the year. And also, oh yeah, May the 4th, right? May the 4th be with you. Um, that will be coming up too. Um this week as well. Lots of lots of awesome stuff happening here and uh, entering the month of May. Um, yeah, so should be fun. We're going to this week read Numbers chapter 26 through 33, uh, also Psalms 86 through 90. And so um, today I want to read uh, something, uh, just basically two different readings. Um, as we see here, they open up with a census here in Numbers. Um, we've got the daughters of Zelophehad. I think Spurgeon has a sermon, maybe from this passage called "Women's Rights." It's kind of uh, funny, uh, or maybe, and maybe, or maybe it's "Women's Vows." I don't remember, but somewhere in here he has a sermon. You know, Spurgeon, the way he always uh, titled sermons, funny. Um, and daily offerings, all the you know, some more of the ceremonial law, the feast of tabernacles. Um, we see God send Israel in to take vengeance on Midian. And then we see Reuben and Gad, they want to have Gilead as their place. And then we have a recounting of Israel's journey of all the places they had been in their uh, in this wilderness wandering. Uh, this I want to read this. This is from Ian Duguid. Um, it's called Living Between the Times. And it's actually kind of a uh, an overview of the book of Numbers. And so as we're reading through the book of Numbers, it's, it's helpful to kind of grasp what we've been reading through here. And hopefully this will be helpful as you kind of, because sometimes it can be so easy, right, to lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes we're so focused on each individual thing that we can lose the big picture. So maybe this will help us as we're reading through Numbers to kind of come back and step back and look at the big picture of everything. So this is from Ian Duguid, Living Between the Times. The story of the book of Numbers is written to a people whose lives are lived between the accomplishing of their redemption and its consummation, between the exodus and the promised land. The book starts by identifying this people as those who came out of Egypt. The story of the book of Numbers essentially picks up where the books of Genesis and Exodus left off. God chose for himself the family of Abraham and redeemed them from their bondage in Egypt. He then brought them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where he graciously entered into a covenant with them. They were to be his people, and he would be their God. As a token of that promise, he gave them the tabernacle, a tent in which he would dwell in their midst. The Lord has done what he promised Abraham in bringing his descendants out of their bondage, but he has not yet brought them into the promised land. They live in between the times, and their present experience is not one of the fullness of their salvation, but rather of the wilderness along the way. This should all sound familiar to us. We live, as they did, between salvation accomplished and salvation completed, 
We live between the work of God in accomplishing our salvation at the cross and the time when that salvation will be brought to its consummation when Christ returns. We too live between the times. What is more, our experience of this world is likewise one of wilderness rather than fullness. Jesus promised his disciples one sure thing in this world, tribulation, and he has been faithful to his promise. Wars, sickness, sin, broken relationships, misunderstandings, pain, tears, all of these are part of our experience in this world. We should surely therefore be able to identify with the experiences and temptations of the first wilderness generation. However, as we journey toward the consummation of our salvation when Christ returns, there is one other certainty that Jesus promised his disciples, isn't there? Jesus promised us his presence with us in the wilderness. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This too matches Israel's experience in the wilderness, for God did not bring them out of Egypt and then abandon them to make their own way through the wilderness. The provision he made for them in the tabernacle in the wilderness should therefore speak to us also, for we have God's presence with us through his Holy Spirit. What are the chief temptations of life in the wilderness? The first temptation is surely the danger of losing the plot. The people of Israel were constantly tempted to doubt that there really was a promised land ahead. All they could see with their eyes was the barrenness of the wilderness. All they could hear with their ears was the howling wasteland around them. All they could taste on their tongues was the hunger and thirst of the wilderness. The wilderness was very real, and the obstacles in terms of opposition and lack of resources were very visible, while the promised land seemed very remote. Life must have often seemed to be a succession of completely unrelated and random events that were getting them nowhere. They surely felt as if their whole lives were slipping away with them from them in one meaningless round of unsatisfying experiences. That is what it means to live by faith, to affirm the reality of God's plot for our lives, even when we cannot see it with our eyes. Isn't that somewhat like our lives? The surface structure of our lives often appears chaotic and random, just one frustration after another, like the surface narrative of the book of Numbers. You wake up, you go to work, you go home, you go to bed. There is never enough time to get everything done, never enough money to meet all your commitments, never enough of you left for yourselves or to give to others. Events that God could so easily have orchestrated to make your life more straightforward regularly become tangled and twisted. This life is often a chaotic wilderness. So what is life all about? Sometimes we are tempted to believe that the wilderness we see is really all there is, that when all is said and done, there is no guiding purpose or meaning to this world. Our lives appear as meaningless as the game of cricket is to the uninitiated, days full of incomprehensible activity that at the end of them accomplish exactly nothing. Yet the deeper structure of the book of Numbers points us in a different direction. On the surface, our lives may seem to wander from one place to the next, driven apparently off course by our grumbling and sin and the vicissitudes of fate. Yet under and through and behind it all, there is a guiding hand, a divine author, who holds the whole grand narrative in his hand and brings it around to the ending he himself has written for us. There is a storyline to our personal stories, an intricate plot that will, after all of life's twists and turns, end up with him bringing us into the place he has prepared for us. That is the reality to which we need to firmly hold. That is what it means to live by faith, to affirm the reality of God's plot for our lives, even when we cannot see it with our eyes. The first generation did not live by that faith. 
They believe their eyes and distrusted and abandoned God and so experienced the bitterness of death in the wilderness. The second generation, however, had a new opportunity to begin again on that journey and start afresh to live by faith. The story of the next generation has just begun at the end of the book of Numbers. The end of their story is left open because the writer is not simply interested in recording the faith or folly of ancient generations. He is far more concerned to challenge us as to our faith in God's promises. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 10.6, after summarizing the wilderness experience, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The question for us, therefore, is, do we believe the word of God, and are we consistently willing to act upon it, whether or not it makes sense to those around us? The lives of faithful pilgrims show the indelible marks of their faith. Their lives are utterly inexplicable unless the word of God is true and heaven is their ultimate destination. Everyone around them can see that they have staked everything on the faithfulness of God to do what he has promised. In contrast, others live as if their lives are simply tied to eking out the best existence they can in the wilderness, as if this really is all there is. It is profoundly challenging to ask ourselves how our lives would be different on Monday morning if there were no heaven. I suspect that for most of us, the answer would be not much. That's why we grumble so much about the food and the accommodations along the way, as if this temporary way station were really our home. That's why our lives are not radically different from the non-Christians all around us. We've lost the plot of our story and have forgotten that we are in the middle of an incredible exodus from death to life, a journey from the city of destruction to our heavenly home. Well, I think that's very helpful. That's for me and do good again. I think that's a wonderful way to think about what we're reading here in the book of Numbers. And so think about that in between these times, um, and you're reading all these stories, but that's the way our life so often is. It seems boring, monotonous, but God does have a plot line that he's moving us towards. He does have a goal for us, and it is going to take place. The next thing and the last thing here I want to read is a Spurgeon sermon, but it's called the census of Israel because in chapter 26, we have this full census of the new generation. God uh, tells Moses, um, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. So they go through and they count all the people of Israel. And, and, and we read this and you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have to sit here and go through these really difficult names and read all these numbers. What in the world is this all about? Well, maybe Spurgeon can give us a clue um, into what um, what he's after here. Um, reading, he gives us uh, particularly verses 63 through 65. Uh, as, and here we read, These were those listed by Moses and Eliezer the priest, who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest, who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Spurgeon says this, We have come to another census, an important halting place in the march of a nation's history. This carries our thoughts back to the ancient Bible story connected with the chosen people of God. A census was taken of the tribes of Israel in the wilderness two years after they had left Egypt. It only numbered males who were over 20, the men capable of active service in war. By thus taking a census of his people, the Lord showed that he valued each one of them, 
They were registered by their families and by their names. Thus were they personally enrolled in the family book of the living God. And he thus, in effect, said to each one of them, I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. By the registration of each man by name, he felt that he was not lost in the crowd, but was by person and pedigree owned as one of those to whom the Lord had promised the land which flowed with milk and honey. There was good reason for taking the number of the people just as the nation was forming so that in the wilderness they might be arranged and marshaled and disciplined for the conflict which lay before them. When commanded of God, because he saw that great ends would be served thereby, and when associated with redemption, a census was by no means a wrong or a dangerous national arrangement. David ordered the people to be numbered, and because his motive and his method were wrong, it brought a pestilence on the land. But in itself, the taking of a census was a wise and useful thing. Thirty-eight years had passed away since the first numbering at Sinai, and the people had come to the borders of the promised land. For they were in the plains of Moab by Jordan, near Jericho. The time had come for another census. The wisdom which commanded the counting of Israel at the beginning of the wilderness journey also determined to count them at the end of it. This would show that he did not value them less than in former years. It would afford proof that his word of judgment had been fulfilled to them. And moreover, it would marshal them for the grand enterprise of conquering the land of Canaan. They were to go forth in their armies to fight giant races and armies versed in war. They were to dislodge nations from their ancient strongholds and with the sword to destroy guilty aboriginal races, which God had condemned to destruction. And for this, their military strength needed numbering and ordering. Here was good reason for the census, which now for the second or third time was carefully carried out. Our text is from the book of Numbers, and the book well answers to its title, for it continually deals with numbers and numberings. The numbering on this occasion was not of the women and children or the infirm, for the order ran thus, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel, from twenty years old and upward, throughout their father's house, all that are able to go to war in Israel. If the numbers of our churches were taken in this fashion, would they not sadly shrink? We have many sick among us that need to be carried about and nursed and doctored. Half the strength of the church goes in ambulance service towards the weak and wounded. Another diminution of power is occasioned by the vast numbers of undeveloped believers to whom the apostle would have said, when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. They should have become men, but they remain babes in grace. They are sadly slow in reaching the fullness of the stature of men in Christ Jesus. How many are quite unable to bear arms against the foe, for they need to be themselves guarded from the enemy. To revise the church rolls so as to leave none but vigorous soldiers on the muster roll would make us break our hearts over our statistics. May the Lord send us for this evil health and cure. When the second census was taken, it was found that the people were nearly of the same number as at the first. Had it not been for the punishment so justly inflicted upon them, they must have largely increased, but now they had somewhat diminished. They were a rapidly increasing people when they were in Egypt. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. The family of Jacob increased at a marvelous rate from the time of the going down into Egypt to the time of quitting that land. This was changed during the 40 years of the wilderness, for the whole of the grown men who came out of bondage were judged unfit to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. And these dying away, the people scarcely maintained their number. It is of God to multiply a nation or a church. 
We may not expect any advance in our numbers if we grieve the Spirit of God, and if by our unbelief we drive him to declare that we shall not prosper. Israel's growth ceased for 40 years. May it never be so with us as a church. We would say, but Jacob, now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be, an hundredfold. May the righteous seed multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it till their numbers shall be as countless as the sands of the shore or as the stars of the sky. Concerning the second census of Israel, I would speak with you since this is the morning of the day on which our British census is to be taken. May we gather lessons of wisdom from the theme. First, observe with interest and with a design to be profited the notable change wrought among the people by death. But among these, there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. They answered to their names, 600,000 and more of them, and there they stood in their ranks, full of vigorous life. About 40 years had passed away, and if these same names had been read out, not a man saved Caleb and Joshua could have answered to the roll call. The entire mass of the nation had been changed. The old ones were all gone. All that stood in their places by the Jordan were men who were under age at the first census, or who were not even born at that time. Not a man of them remained, says the text, and it repeats the statement. There was not left a man of them. Such changes strike us as most memorable. They must not be passed over without remark. In the course of 40 years, my brethren, what changes take place in every community, in every church, in every family? A friend showed me last Thursday a photograph of myself in the midst of my first deacons. It was taken scarcely 38 years ago, and yet of the entire group, I only survive. Those associates of the youthful preacher have all gone to their reward. We have likenesses of other groups of church officers of a later date, in which I am placed in the center, and I am there still. But nearly all of those who once surrounded me have gone home. Those who were our leaders in our days of struggle and who saw the hand of God with us in those first years are growing few in number. We have not yet completed the 40 years, but when we have done so, the words of our text will be almost literally applicable to our case as a church. The going and the coming, the adding and the taking away have changed the texture of this fabric and no thread will soon be left. Surely the Lord would have left, would have us notice this, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. A costly operation involving so many sorrows is not to be passed over without thought. Beloved, we too are passing away. The pastor and his present helpers must themselves be summoned home in due course. The march of the generations is not a procession passing before our eyes while we sit like spectators at the window, but we are in the procession ourselves, and we too are passing down the streets of time and shall disappear in our turn. We too shall sleep with our fathers unless the Lord shall come speedily. I hear a clarion blast sounding out from the graves which lie behind us. Be ye also ready. From the last closed sepulcher, there comes the prophetic warning. Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. This change was universal throughout the whole camp. There was a change even in the enumerators. The Sinai census had been taken by Moses and Aaron, and now Moses just remains long enough to take his leading place. But his brother Aaron is not there. The high priest of God has gone up to Mount Hor, has been stripped of his garments, has been buried and mourned by all Israel, and now Eliezer, his son, stands before the Lord in his father's stead. It was so among the other priests and Levites and elders of the people. There was a change everywhere, among the poorest dwellers in that canvas city and among the princes who dwelt beneath the standards of the tribes. 
all had changed. There was not left a man of them. Thus it is among ourselves. No offices can be permanently held by the same men. They are not suffered to continue by reason of death. No position, however lofty or lowly, can retain its old possessor. It is not only the cedars that fall, but the fir trees feel the axe. There is no discharge in that war. That same scythe which cuts down the towering flower among the grass also sweeps down whole regiments of green blades. See how they lie together in long rows to wither in a common decay. Throughout the whole body, this change is gradually taking place. No man can climb the rock of immortality and sit there amid the seething sea and say to death, thy waves cannot reach me here. Though vigorous in health, though sound in constitution, though guarded by all the armor of the science of health, you too must fall by the arrows of the insatiable archer. It is appointed unto men once to die. The change is inevitable. Man that is born of woman must be a few days. If it had not been for the great sin of Israel at Kadesh, many of the people might have lived to the second census and beyond it. But even then, if by reason of strength their lives had been lengthened, yet would they soon have died out in the ordinary course of nature? If forty years had not been appointed as the end of that generation, yet without that appointment they would have all passed away in another twenty or thirty years. As Moses said in his wilderness psalm, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet it is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. We must soon quit our tents for the last battle. When the conscript number shall be drawn, we may escape this year and next, but the lot will fall upon us in due time. There is no leaping from the net of immortality wherein, like a shoal of fish, we are all enclosed. Unless our Lord shall soon appear, we shall each one find a grave. For as the wise man says, all are of dust and all turn to dust again. We must needs die and are as water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Therefore, we wisely bow before the stern decree and yield ourselves to death. But let us not forget that all this change was still under the divine control. Though the people must pass away, yet still the Lord's hand would be in each death and its surroundings. If not a sparrow falleth to the ground without our father's knowledge, we may rest assured that no man dieth without the will of God. No man is carried to his long home unless the Lord hath said, Return, ye children of men. What can preserve my life or what destroy? An angel's arm can't snatch me from the grave. Legions of angels can't confine me there. To create and to destroy our sole prerogatives of the king of kings. Till he speaks the word, we live not, or living, we die not. Walking in the midst of ten thousand stricken with the plague, we are safe till God appoints our removal. Concerning those that are asleep, we know that they have not died without the will of our Father. Concerning our time also, we know that we shall not be the toys of chance or the victims of fate. A wise and loving God fixes the date and place of our decease, for precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Stern though the work may be, his great and tender heart rules the ravages of death. Let us therefore be comforted concerning the great changes which death is working. Here is no cause for tears, as though we were left in a monster's power and bereft of a father's care. The Lord is still ruling, and nothing happens save as he appoints. Moreover, the change was beneficial. It was well that the first generation should die in the wilderness. The people who had been accustomed to servitude in Egypt had acquired the vices of slaves. And when they came out of the house of bondage, they were fearful, fickle, the creatures of appetite, and the victims of panic, selfishness, and discontent. 
They had all the vices of subject races and were alike destitute of manliness and self-control. They were soon cowed by fear and baffled by difficulty. They were easily persuaded and as easily dissuaded. They were a people of whom nothing could be made. Even the divine tuition in which Moses and Aaron were engaged and in which miracles and types and laws were employed could not teach them anything so that they really knew it. To make a nation which could preserve the worship of the one God in the world, the generation which came out of Egypt must die out. The taint of slavery and idolatry must be lessened if it could not be quite removed. It was desirable that there should be a people trained in a better school with a nobler spirit fit to take possession of the promised land. The change was working rightly. The divine purpose was being fulfilled. Maybe we do not think thus of the changes which are taking place in the communities to which we belong. We scarcely think that better men are coming on. We even fear that the coming race is weaker than the present. But then we are not fair judges, for we are prejudiced in favor of our own generation. I do not doubt that God meaneth well to his own church, and that the accomplishment of his eternal purposes requires that men should come and go, and that thus the face of society should be changed. It is well that the age of man is not so protracted as in the days of Methuselah. A teacher influential for error dies and is forgotten. A sinner pestilential for vice passes away and the air grows pure. Imagine a gambler with 500 years of craft to guide him, or a libertine reeking with 600 years of debauchery. Surely the present narrowed limits of human life are all too wide for the depraved. We need not wish for giants of iniquity such as centuries of life would produce. The incoming of new blood into the social frame is good in a thousand ways. It is well that we should make room for others who may serve our master better. God grant they may. Our prayer is, let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. We are content to take the work if our sons may behold the glory. We are glad to move off that they may rise on stepping stones of our ended lives to nobler things. One other remark I cannot help making, and that is that these changes are most instructive. If we are now serving God, let us do so with intense earnestness, since only for a little while shall we have the opportunity to do so among men. Whatsoever thy, fa thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Live while you live. At the same time, lay plans for influencing the rising generation. Lay yourself out to work while it is called today. If anything should be done, it were well that it were done quickly. If we wish truth to conquer and the gospel to prevail, let us fight the Lord's battles now. And if we would see truth prevail after we are gone, let us seek out faithful young men who will teach others also that the testimony for the Lord God of Israel die not out of the land. We must soon quit the field. Let each man set his house in order, for he must soon leave it to be gazed upon by strangers' eyes. Let us see that our life work is rounded off and well finished, so that in the survey of it by our successors they may say of us, He being dead, yet speaketh. As we must soon be gone from among the living, let us bless them while we may. Arise, ye saints, and bestir yourselves, for the day is far spent and the shadows of evening are falling. I pray that we may learn well this first lesson of our text. O Spirit of life, teach us life even by the doings of death. Secondly, we have here before us the perpetuity of the people of God. There was a change in the constituent elements of the Israelitish nation, but the nation was still there. Not one man was there who was counted 38 years before, save Caleb and Joshua, and yet the nation was the same. Do you ask for Israel? There it is. 
Balaam can see the people from the top of the hill, and they are the same people whom Pharaoh pursued to the Red Sea. The nation is living, though a nation has died. It is the same chosen seed of Abraham with whom Jehovah is in covenant. God has a church in the world, and he will have a church in the world till time shall be no more. The gates of hell and the jaws of death shall not prevail against the church, though each one of its members must depart out of this world in its turn. Mark well that the church in the wilderness lives on. There are the same twelve tribes, the same standards heading the tribes, the same tabernacle in the midst of the host, and the same priesthood celebrating sacred service with solemn pomp. Everything has changed and yet nothing has altered. God has built his holy habitation upon foundations which can never be removed. Although the men who bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord wear other names, yet they fulfill the same office. The music of the sanctuary rises and falls, but the strain goes on. The hallelujah never ceases, nor is there a pause in the perpetual chorus. His mercy endureth forever. The gaps were filled up by, by appointed successors. As one warrior died, another man stepped into his place, even as one wave dying on the shores pursued by another. The men were not all swept away at once, but by perceptible degrees. Now and then there came an awful and sudden destruction, as when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram went down alive into the pit. But as a rule, the people dropped off gradually, as ripe fruit falls from the trees, and they were succeeded by others as the fading leaves of autumn have the buds of spring just beneath them. In the church of God one dieth in the order of nature, but another is born into the kingdom of the power of grace. We miss some useful Christian woman, and we lament her, but before many days another sister is prepared of the Lord to serve in her stead. Baptism for the dead never ceases among us. An honored brother falls asleep, and we carry him to the grave, and possibly we fear no other can do his work and fill the vacancy he leaves. Perhaps no one can do the same work, but yet in some other way or form the work is done, and still the vines are trimmed, the sheep are fed, and the lambs are cherished. No one dead man lies in the way to stop the march of the army, as did the corpse of Amasa, which lay gory in the road in David's day. The chosen host still marches on. Even as the stars in their courses, we still move on. God buries his workmen, but his work lives. In Israel's case, the gaps were filled by their own sons. As these men passed away, their children took their places. I commend to you, my brethren, this fact is your encouragement and prayer for your children. Oh, that the Lord would pour his spirit upon our seed and his blessing upon our offspring. Oh, that every saint here may be succeeded by his own descendants. This is the Lord's frequent way of keeping alive the gracious succession. Abraham is gone, but Isaac still kindles the altar fire. In a blind old age, Isaac is gathered to his fathers, but Jacob worships the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob gathers up his feet in the bed, but Judah and Joseph and the rest of them continue as a salt in the earth. Oh, that it may be so in all our families. May we never lack a man to stand before the Lord God of Israel to testify before him. Among all the honors that God can put upon our households, I think this is the greatest, that we should have in our families a succession of saints. It is no small privilege to look back and to remember our ancestors who feared the Lord. May we also look forward with hope that in this dispensation, if this dispensation lasts, there may still be some of our name bearing our blood in their veins who shall be called by sovereign grace into the service we have loved so well. Search beyond the congregation for new converts, but do not forget to look within your own doors for the largest secessions to the church. Hope that your sons and daughters after the flesh may be born into the one family in heaven and earth, which bears the name of Jesus.
Pray that your children may be God's children, and may your prayer come up with acceptance into the ears of the Lord our God, whose mercy is on children's children of them that fear him and keep his covenant. All the offices of the church in the wilderness were filled with fitting men. Behold Aaron in his robes of glory and beauty. What a man is he to be the high priest, with what grace and dignity he presides. He dies. Will not the priesthood fail? No, my brethren. Yonder is Eliezer, who occupies his father's place most worthily. Moses also passes away. There is none like Moses. He is king in Jeshurun, without peer or rival. The Jews have a tradition that when he was called to go up to the top of Nebo to die, the people followed him up the hill, the women beating on their breasts and uttering bitter wailings, while the strong men bowed themselves with grief and cried, The father of the nation is to be taken away. Alas, what shall we do? He was bidden to leave the people on the mountainside, and he went up alone to the place where Jehovah kissed away his soul, and so he passed into his rest. Truly, it was a great loss, but the Lord found a man to follow Moses. Joshua was not equal to Moses in many things, and yet for the work he had to do, he was a much more fit man than Moses. The times were red with war, and Joshua was more able than Moses to fight the Canaanites and conquer the land. Joshua was the man for the sword, as Moses had been the man of the book. And God will fill every office in his church, not as you and I might wish, but as his infinite wisdom determines. Wherefore, let us be of good courage and fear no lack. At, his, at this second numbering, the people stood ready for greater work than they had ever done before. The first numbering found them fit for the wilderness. The second numbering found them ready for the capture of the goodly land in Lebanon. God had been preparing them by 40 years of marching for their new enterprise and for development into a nation. May it please the Lord to make his church ready for the coming of her Lord and for the salvation of nations. If brighter days are dawning, the church will be prepared as a bride for her husband. And if tribulation is to come to try all the earth, she shall be strengthened as a martyr for the burning. The Lord doth keep her, lest any hurt her, he will keep her night and day. It was Israel's joy that God's love was not withdrawn from the nation. The Lord still owed the tribes as his people. His glory was still above the mercy seat, and his fiery cloudy pillar still guided their marchings or fixed their haltings. Still the manna dropped from heaven, and still they drank of the water from the smitten rock. Thus the Lord has a church still, and it is ever the same church, loved of her Lord, indwelt by his Spirit, and dedicated to his praise. Let us take courage. The church is not destroyed. Many changes take place, and many sorrows are involved therein. But the church of God is as ever living as her immortal head, who has declared, Because I live, ye shall all live also. Still her stars are the hope of the world's night, and her angels are the heralds of the eternal morning. She follows the bleeding lamb, who is the doctrine of her teaching, the model of her acting, the glory of her hope. Thirdly, let me bring before your minds the unchangeableness of the word of God. This we perceive in the last verse. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness, and there was not left a man of them save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Note, how unchangeable are the threatenings of the Lord. Among these there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priests numbered. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. Take note of this. You that think God's word can fail, ye know not what ye dream. His words of righteous wrath are not lost. They kill us with a two-edged sword. The verse says, There was not left a man of them. Whom the Lord had condemned to die, nothing could keep alive. Therefore do not imagine, O you that obey not the Lord, that you shall go unpunished. 
The unbelievers were many, yet not one escaped. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished. The rebels were a terrible, large majority, but the crowds and the broad way make it none the safer. God has no respect for multitudes. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Here they outnumbered the faithful more than 10,000 times, and yet the justice of God did not spare one of them. There was not left a man of them. How can any of you hope to escape? Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. The proudest sinner shall be laid low. The thunders of Jehovah shall smite down each individual transgressor, and no one shall go away free in the day of God's wrath. It was a long time before all the sinners died, but the long-suffering of God had its limit, and in the end every rebel died in the wilderness. They lived on, some of them, for all the forty years, but they could not pass the bound. Perhaps they said, Ah, this ban from God will never take effect on us. Yet ere the years were up, the survivors of the doomed race had to share the common fate. Not a man of those whom Moses and Aaron numbered at Sinai could pass the line of fire which closed in the forty years. God waits, waits in infinite mercy. But the punishment of the wicked is nonetheless sure. Their foot shall slide in due time. The Lord hath bent his bow and made it ready. And when their hour is come, they shall find that he is not slack concerning his word. Do not, I pray you, doubt the terrible certainty of divine threatenings, because they are long in taking effect. Say not, where is the promise of his coming? He will come. And when he comes, it shall be in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the unbelieving generation were no doubt full of vigor, and they said, We are as strong as old Caleb, and quite as likely as he to cross the Jordan. Our eyes are as clear as those of Moses, and we shall outlive the forty years appointed us. But death chilled the coals of juniper, and quenched their vehement flame. The stalwart man of war laid down his weapons, vanquished by the unconquerable foe of men. There was not left a man of them. How like a knell those words sound in my ears. The mighty in the day of battle were no longer mighty when their hour had come. They could not enter in because of unbelief, but their carcasses fell in the wilderness. All their days were passed away in the wrath of God. Beware ye that forget God, lest he tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. It is vain for you to indulge a hope, larger or smaller, if you die in your sin. The justice of the Most High is not to be escaped. In that last great day, when the throne shall be set, and every man shall give an account for the things done in his body, whether they be good or whether they be evil, the strict judge will by no means clear the guilty, but they shall be driven away in his wrath to the place where their worm dieth not, and their fire is not quenched. Oh, that you would flee to Christ for refuge. Look to his cross, I pray you, that you may be saved. As the Lord fulfilled his threatening, so did he cause his promises to come to pass. Caleb lived on, and so did Joshua. They were often in danger. Did not the rebels take up stones to stone them? They were of often or near to, de near to death. Joshua was commander-in-chief of the army, and Caleb was a man of war from his youth up. They endured the common risks of soldiers, but nothing could kill them, for God had promised that they should enter the land. They believed God and honored him by their conduct, and therefore he kept them until the hour came to go in unto the land to possess it. There were only two of them, but God did not therefore overlook them. He keeps covenant with individuals as well as with nations. They were not men who kept themselves out of harm's way, neither were they timorous and therefore afraid to advance their opinions. No doubt they came in for a special share of envy and malice, but their reward with God was sure. If you believe in Jesus... Though you should be the only one of your family, yet you shall be saved.
Though you know none of your kith and kin that fear the Lord, yet the God of Israel will not forget the lone one who is separated from his brethren. Though the faithful should become so few that all the saints together should only make a handful, yet it is written, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's word standeth. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Jehovah's threatenings and promises are of equal force. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? There shall be no change even to a jot or tittle in his wondrous book. God forbid that we should begin to doubt it. For if we once begin, where shall we end? With this striking confirmation before us, we believe that the word of the Lord must stand. Let us be as the man whom the Lord blesses, because, saith he, he trembleth at my word. Well, there's a little bit more there at the end, but we will wrap it up here. Um, I think those are helpful readings um, as we think about the overview of what we're reading here in the book of Numbers, to remember the changes that have happened with the people of God, the changes of on the way in the wilderness, and then all the changes as Spurgeon points out of how God continues to show his faithfulness over the course of a 40-year period. One nation goes away, another comes in its place, but the nation exists and God supports it and continues it. And we trust the same is true here at MMBC as a church, as a congregation, that our God has surprised he supported the past generations and is supporting the present. So he will support in the future. Well, thank you for reading this and being with us this week. We're going to continue next week in numbers and probably I'm assuming going into Deuteronomy Um, should be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this. Take care. God bless.